Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, guys. Popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Another amazing episode coming at you. What real hot right now? Mm-hmm. Like hotter than our merch. Oh, Oh, I like actually you nothing's this. hotter than our merch. Nothing. That's true. It's literally aka it's okay, so it's not like physically in retail stores, but it is flying off the like hypothetical shelves. The digital shelves. The digital shelves. There we go. It is. So if you guys haven't grabbed like what you want yet, do it now before it's A sold out because there are a lot of sizes and colors that are selling out really quickly, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Okay, thank you guys for like shopping and loving our stuff and all of that. But just like FYI, if you want to like there's certain things you have your eye on, do it now, not later. And and important is it is limited edition. Yes. We this is our first run of merch. We're, you know, obviously testing the waters, seeing what you guys like, what colors, what fonts, you know, all that jazz. So there are only we got eight days left yeah there's eight days left so that was the other thing i was thinking like if you want to all like maybe gift this to somebody for the holidays now's the time to purchase Mm -hmm. those because in eight days they're gonna be out of here there's probably a high chance we're gonna do another round before the holidays maybe with some new stuff maybe with some old stuff we'll see but just in case if you were thinking about gifting to somebody you gotta get them get them while they're hot aka now aka in the next eight days Dun, dun, dun. Also, Which actually, by the time you guys listen to this, it'll be seven. Also, like, so basically, countdown begins. Well, yeah. So go get the merch, and then <laughs> I have like huge news to share. Just speaking of oh. counting down days, I have COVID. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where is this going? Um, uh, yeah, I have COVID. Mm. So I, for about five days last week, thought I just had a cold, and then my smell decided to just disappear. And I was like, huh, interesting. Took a test and I have COVID, tested positive on Saturday. It was the most depressing weekend of my life. I was just like at home, literally with nothing to do. Also like couldn't smell, so I couldn't taste very well. And like the one thing about being sick is like that you can maybe find comfort in is that you can like be on the couch or like cozy Mm -hmm. watching a bunch of TV, eating your favorite foods. I couldn't even do that. Like, it was just so depressing. 
and everyone was out and about enjoying their weekend and I was stuck with COVID this weekend. But on the bright side, I was already like six days in at that point. So by Thursday, I should be free, which is like oh not that bad. But I was thinking like if I were to have well, tested positive in- and had to do like the full 10 days, I would have been that's so hard. Like, I'm sorry for anyone who had to deal with that. It came my father. Actually, I gave it to my father. So <laughs> he's oh doing God, okay. He kill he's you. Okay. Oh, he's he's very mad. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's, he's doing, he's doing okay. I just feel like it's so hard to know. I mean, I haven't luckily had like a scare of it, but like knock on wood now I'm totally going to screw myself on that. But like, I feel like there's so much confusion on the symptoms. Like it could easily it's be a cold. Bizarre. Like, I feel like the only reason, like you said, the only reason you were like, oh, wait a second. It's because you lost your smell. No, Because totally. that is such a weird thing. And but like, if that doesn't happen. Yeah. Why would you ever think it's anything different? Obviously, if you're vaccinated and you have a less severe case and all of that sort of things in, in the mix. But like, if say that is right, the situation, the thing we're studying, like, why would you think it's different from a cold or even if it's the flu, like a little bit, like, yeah, no, or even too like season. a party weekend. Like there's so many times where right. it's like, I come off a weekend of things where I was like, oh my gosh, I was locked and loaded of all the things I had to do, got an hour of sleep. And it's like, I sound like I came out of like, I well, don't Here's know. what happened it's, to me because last I Monday I started to get like kind of a fevery. I had like a fevery Monday where I was like achy, like kind of like, you know, that fluey feeling. Mm, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh shit, I'm sick. But I was expecting to get sick because I was at a festival all weekend. And right. every single person I was with at the festival had a cold the week prior. And they tested mm. negative, except for my roommate, actually. She didn't test, but she had like a cold for like three days, which I'm like, I doubt that's COVID. But everyone I was with was sick, but tested negative for COVID. So I was like, I'm for sure getting sick this week. I knew I was going to get the cold. But so that's why I also didn't think it was going to be COVID because I was like expecting to get sick. But they all tested negative for COVID. So I was like, I'm just getting whatever cold this is. And then I saw my sister for her birthday last week. She was also sick and my whole family was there. My dad was the only one that got infected from me. I'm also in this tiny ass San Francisco apartment with my roommate. I was with her for the five days I didn't know it was COVID, eating together, sitting on the couch, watching TV. What? She's she's COVID-free. I'm like, this is so bizarre, just how this all works. Like, no wonder there's always been so many questions. This fucking virus is just so mysterious. I can't. So bizarre. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. The fact that that many people, it's like, would test negative. And two, like, I, which I'm a few of my friends had this bachelorette, I guess this is almost a month ago at this point but kind of like similar situation in terms of numbers like at the end of it and it was like honestly it was only like a few hours dinner type thing it wasn't like a whole weekend shenanigan but literally everyone tested negative except for one person one person got covid and no one else that was there i was like i don't know 25 people in close quarters and one person got it and no one else did what and they were all vaccinated it wasn't like oh well like obviously you know What's her face? Like, no. Yeah, I still I, don't know who gave it I to me. I don't get it. I still, I mean, obviously, I was at a festival, so, like, I could have gotten it from literally right. any of, like, what, 100,000 people that were there. So, there's that. But I was just, like, so confused because I was fully expecting to get that cold that all my friends had and were yelling in my face all weekend with. But it ended up being COVID. I'm like, this is so bizarre. But anyways, bright side, I have two more full days left. And my I smell's coming jury back. duty. And I have jury duty this week, but I ha- I haven't been called in yet. I have to keep checking it every day. 
But oh I God, called them right. and I was like, uh, I have COVID. And they were like, well, just keep checking every day and you you might just be done with your jury duty and never have to come in. Like, whereas if you postpone, then they'll call you back and then you have to do this oh. whole thing over again. So it's just been, it's been a week for me, but it's looking up. My smell is coming back. Like everyone out there appreciate that schnoz of yours because <laughs> it really not being able to smell is depressing, depressing. I didn't know how, how much I needed my smell. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> but speaking, of, speaking I like smell, of. I sprayed my perfume yesterday and I smelled it and I was able to smell it and I was like, oh. <gasps> And I just like danced it's around back. my room. I was so excited. Oh, I just can't. But anyways, enough on enough on COVID. But we have an amazing guest today. And I think this conversation is incredible. I'm so excited. We absolutely have an amazing conversation because we are taking it down to Texas with Julie Oliver, who is the executive director at Ground Game Texas. But we're not just talking about her organization, which is super awesome. Of course, we'll get into a little bit of that as well. But we're talking about healthcare finance in the U.S. And before you go... Mm, that sounds boring. Why are you guys getting all financial on us? Because it's really, really important. And it impacts, honestly, your day-to-day, your family's day-to-day, and so much more. So we get into we get into some of the programs, like what's Medicaid, what's Medicare. There are a lot of differences between the two programs and so much more. So this will help give you guys a little bit of an understanding of healthcare in the U.S. Because let's be real, it is the economy stupid, and it all has to do with finances. So... Without further ado, let's get into it. And here is Julie. Well, thank you all for having me. I'm so, so happy to be here. My name is Julie Oliver, and I ran for Congress here in Texas a couple times in the 2018 cycle and then again in the 2020 cycle. And I got into this and I dove into the congressional level for a couple of reasons. One, my entire career, almost my entire career was spent in healthcare finance. And for something that's incredibly complicated that so many people don't understand how it works, they just know when they get a bill from their doctor, if they have to go to the ER, they're so incredibly frustrated. Maybe some people have noticed a huge spike in their you know, prescription payments. I think we need people in Congress who understand this and who can offer up. And so that's one of the reasons I ran because I had a 15 year long career in healthcare finance. But the other reason I ran because I had no political aspirations and really the driving force of this was my son. I have a son who's almost 25 and in 2017, when the U.S. House was dominated by Republicans, they voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. A lot of people call it Obamacare. And went over to the Senate side. Some of y'all may famously remember John McCain doing the thumbs down. And it was probably one of the Mm. one times I was like, oh, my God, thank you for John McCain. Thank you so much. (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) He he really did. He saved the Affordable Care Act with that vote. And Mm. for a lot of young people, that meant they could stay on their parents' insurance until they turned 26. For folks who had pre-existing conditions, like my son, who who was immunocompromised, it meant that an insurance company couldn't discriminate against him. And so it was a very, very personal decision. I looked at my husband and said, I have an awful idea and I need you to talk me out of it. And I think he actually did try. I used to tell the story like, oh, he really encouraged me. Initially, he was like, yeah, please don't do that. (laughs) Then he was like, no, you have to. Now I see it. It makes so much sense. But that's why I got into it. It was really, I felt like I had to save my son from from con yeah totally well can you also tell us a little bit about your district and what the demographics are like and what kind of issues are at hand there 
Well, our district was very, very interesting. I always called it the jalapeno heart of Texas. It was Texas 25. <laughs> if you look at it on Wikipedia, it really does look like somebody took a jalapeno and kind of pixelated it, oh and, you know, slapped it, it onto Texas. But what they did a long time ago, you know, during the last redistricting session is took the city of Austin, which is a very democratic leaning city, very progressive city in the state of Texas. And they carved it six different ways to dilute the democratic vote. Five, it, we ended up with five Republican congressmen and one Democratic con uh, congressman, when originally it had just one Democratic congressman. So they, they carved it up and they took the district that I ran in, and it actually started south of Austin in a little town called Wimberley, a beautiful, beautiful hill country town called Wimberley. And then it snaked its way up kind of northwest, almost to Fort Worth. So shoot, I think 100, 200 miles in length and wow. 7,500 square miles, 13 counties, wow. and a, a small portion of Austin, and then you had a ton of rural Texas. And, and unfortunately, not only did Austin receive kind of the short end of the stick when redistricting happened, Colleen, which is a really diverse working class city that sits outside of Fort Hood, the largest military installation in the United States, it also got carved up. And it got split between two congressional districts because both of the Republican uh, congressmen feared that if they actually gave, uh, put Colleen solely into one of those districts, it could flip one of those districts be Democratic vote share. And the really sad, unfortunate thing is we're doing redistricting now and Colleen was taken from central Texas and put in a district that is far, far, far west Texas. So. 350 miles spans the district that Colleen is now in. And it's now Colleen, which is this, again, very diverse city with the rest of this incredibly rural part of Texas, including Midland and Odessa. The guy I was running against in District 25 had a district card for him about five counties away from Austin. So he doesn't want any part of Austin anymore. I always like to think we ran him out of Austin. Kind of <laughs> I a, love that. It's kind of a win overall for us. So. Okay. <laughs> like, see you later, sir. Don't let yeah, the door hit you on the way out. Like, <laughs> yeah. not going to cry any tears over that. But it seems like so much stuff going on in Texas these days. It's not even funny. Like, I, granted, I'm like, Hmm, like, is this U.S. news or just Texas? Do the news just get covered by Texas at this point? Which I think is, like, a really interesting litmus test for so much that's going on and so interesting. And, you know, I think all this sort of pulls into what's ahead for Texas, which you are the co-founder and executive director for Ground Game Texas. And yep. I think that could not be more pertinent in this moment as to, you know, where we're going, where we could go. Can you give us a little bit of background as to how your role there is really, you know, sort of pushing progressive politics in Texas, changing the game there and all that jazz? I would love to. So when I lost my 2020 election, I did a few things. One of them, I went to Georgia and I canvassed for Warnock and Ossoff's runoff races and felt so proud to be part of that. My 23-year-old daughter and I got in a car, drove across, across the country with one of my old campaign workers, and we knocked doors. And it just, it was very cathartic for me and very healing. And I saw the energy. I mean, truly, like you're talking to people at their doors or in the grocery store, and people were excited about yeah. voting. Mm -hmm. And it pulled people in who had not voted in a long time. And I was like, y'all get to make history. I mean, I wanted to drive to Georgia because I wanted to watch y'all make history. That's how important it was for me. And so that was to me just, wow, what an incredible feeling. But I also came back and I was looking at 
the races in Texas. And, you know, I think a lot of people were disappointed because we didn't flip any House seats. We didn't make any gains in the state legislature. So it was, you know, kind of a disappointment overall. And maybe I am an optimist. And, and so maybe that's what keeps me going. But I, I start looking at data and I love numbers. I've always loved numbers, loved math. In fact, I did an accounting undergrad because I thought accounting was math and discovered in later that it's it's a little bit of math, but a lot of theory. Still love accounting, <laughs> but I digress. Uh, but when you start looking at the math and you look at the gains that Biden made over, you know, Hillary and the gains even Hillary made over, you know, the prior Democratic uh, nominee, we are steadily moving in a direction um, that will lead Texas ultimately to a democratic state mm -hmm. if we don't lose our, our right to vote altogether because of what the state legislature is doing, right, has done, and what the governor signed into law, which was mm -hmm. SB1, one of the most restrictive voting bills ever, ever imagined. So we, I, I got really excited about like those sorts of gains, but I also looked at the numbers and the turnout numbers for our safe congressional Democrats. You know, in Texas, prior to the census, we'll be picking up two seats, but prior to that, we had 36 congressional seats. 11 of those 36, so about a third, not quite a third, were Democratic safe seats, gerrymandered to favor a Democrat. All of them were the poorest in terms of turnout in the state of Texas. The same couldn't be said of Republican safe seats. They turned out their voters, mm -hmm. turned out their voters in a, in a huge, very strong way. But I realized we have a tremendous amount of opportunity. 5.6 million voters did not show up to vote last November. Yeah. Wow. That is a game changer. Totally. Even if half of, oh my gosh, even if a quarter of those had turned out to vote, that is a game changer. Secondly, there are about two, two and a half million folks who were unregistered, who could have been registered, would have qualified to be registered. So you really are talking about numbers that could change in a massive way electoral totally. outcomes. Yeah. So it got me to thinking, and I started I maintained contact with um, my colleague, Mike Siegel, who was running in a different congressional district, also incredibly progressive. What can we do to help Texas? And so we, I started, well, we together were like, well, we know we need to talk to people year round, but what are we going to talk to them about? Because sometimes people are not interested in candidates, quite frankly, you mm -hmm. know, and, and when there's not an imminent election, it seems strange to talk to somebody about a candidate. So we thought about, should we go deep, do deep canvassing, where you start talking about issues, go door to door and talk uh, to people about issues they care about. And that's a very, very effective means of one, turning people out to vote, but two, also moving them closer towards the end of the spectrum that you hope that they would move towards. So if you're talking about something like healthcare and, and universal healthcare, you know, talking to people who might start out on like, no, I don't believe in universal healthcare, I don't want to, I want to pay for it. You have a long conversation with them, they might move from like, having a an interest on a scale of one to ten a one initially they may have moved up to a four or five so they're very very impactful conversations but then i also read a report that civis put out civis is a national data analytics firm it does a lot of work for the democratic party including assigning what they call partisanship scores to the voter file so it rates you on a scale of zero to 100 how likely are you to vote for a democrat but they put out this postmortem that i found fascinating. And there was one slide in particular in this postmortem that would just like caught my eye. And it were the ballot issues that shared space with candidates in 2020 that outperformed Democrats everywhere. 
And so Florida put, you know, collected signatures for a $15 minimum wage, outperformed Democrats on the ticket. Missouri collected signatures, statewide signatures to expand Medicaid in their state. It passed, outperformed Democrats. South Dakota legalized marijuana for medicinal purposes. But all of these things, my husband calls it workers' wages and weed. All of these things <laughs> really that. have strong, yeah, I love, I mean, it, I was like that, yeah, it sticks. Mm-hmm. They have, it has strong support yeah. across the political spectrum, but people are not identifying these issues as democratic issues. Totally. Because Republicans do not, at least elected Republicans, do not favor a $15 minimum wage. Elected Republicans want to strip people of health care, including Medicaid, ex- including the expansion of Medicaid. And rep- elected Republicans firmly dig their heels in and say, no, we're not going to legalize marijuana. I mean, we've got a lieutenant governor here who said there'll never be a, a floor vote on decriminalizing marijuana under my watch. So we need to do a better job. We being the Democratic Party needs to do a better job about messaging yeah. to people because we could win, I think, a lot of voters. They care totally. about these issues. We need to t- let them know that this is what the Democratic Party stands for. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, and I know that wasn't a short answer, we decided to go with ballot initiatives in the state of Texas. Okay. And we can't do a statewide one. We're precluded by our Texas constitution from doing a statewide ballot initiative, but we can do these city-based campaigns. And that's exactly what we're gonna do. We're gonna go city by city. There'll be some cities, the majority of them will focus on marijuana decrim. Others will focus on giving city workers a $15 minimum wage along with city, any contractors who contract with cities. So we're trying to really find those issues where we can engage voters on issues that they really care about, that will be impactful in their lives, but will also, you know, deliver a vote at the end of the day because someone will come out and vote for it. So that's the genesis of Ground Game Texas. That's amazing. Can you kind of explain too what like a city ballot initiative is and yeah. like how that would even how that works? Like is that it's direct uh, democracy. It yeah. really is. It's so in you know, typically when you elect leaders, either at the city council level or the legislative level, they're voting on laws that mm-hmm. will impact you, right? They're voting on laws to, you know, restrict things or expand things, but you kind of give them the charge of, okay, I trust you that you're gonna make the right decision. And you'll vote for the things that are good for this constituency, right? Ballot initiatives bypass the elected official. And if you collect enough signatures in a jurisdiction, you can actually take a ballot initiative or that law to voters directly. So when they go to vote in November of next year, they'll see the list of candidates that they can vote for, including the governor, including congressional reps, all the way down. But then they'll also be able to say, do you approve this ballot initiative that would end enforcement of class A and class B misdemeanor marijuana possession cases? And in Texas, 87% of Texans agree that we should legalize marijuana marijuana in some form or fashion. And so we think that these have a very strong likelihood of passage. But once the voters vote on it in favor of it, a majority of voters who vote in that election vote in favor of it, that becomes the law of your jurisdiction. Okay. So in Austin or in Colleen or in San Marcos or, you know, any of these cities that we're going to be working in, that ballot initiative that you voted on, that ordinance becomes the law of your city. Wow. That's so smart. Love that strategy. You know, it's, it's, I wish we could do a statewide that would solve a lot of problems, but we can't. So this is, you know, a way of getting 
Well, what I also like about this, this allows us to look at the cities where we really need to increase and boost turnout. Yeah. I mentioned Colleen a lot because it is also a city that as diverse as it is, as working class as it is, does not vote in numbers that we need it to vote. And Colleen voted at 49% turnout in November of 2020. Imagine if we lifted that turnout to 55 or 60%, maybe even 65%. And mm -hmm. that is all possible when you give somebody a reason like, oh yeah, I'll go vote for that. That's a great idea. Right. Totally. Plus we're, you know, you know, it's it's a way of we're collecting data. So if somebody's not registered at the address that they signed their petition at, you know, yeah. you have to list your address. We'll get them voter registration forms so that they can be registered at the address and then go vote for this initiative. Totally. So it kind of serves a twofold purpose. No, there's so many. I was going to say not even twofold. I feel like it's like multifold yeah. purposes, yeah. like getting people to get out to vote because, hey, you know, legalizing marijuana might be on there. OK, let's mobilize and go vote for that. And hey, while I'm at it, I'll go vote for these other candidates or whatever. But right. then and candidates need to also like identify I'm I'm in favor of that totally do it at the state level or the federal level. Yeah. Yeah. And even it's just so much easier to like sometimes vote for an issue than it is like a person. Yeah. Like you might genuinely like look at all the candidates and be like not excited about them, but you're mm -hmm. excited about this initiative and you're like, okay, well, like kind of honestly like F them, but I'm going for this. So like right. that type of like loophole, like thought process, freaking love it. Like I think there's so much more need for it does beg like the question like why can't this happen on the state level like is there like is this a unique to like texas thing like what's the sort of mechanism there that prevents it from being like okay everyone let's get it together state of texas let's go so in texas our constitution only allows these direct democracy initiatives if it is put out by the state legislature so we'll be like this november in odd years november of odd years we vote on our texas constitutional amendments that all has to generate from the state legislature and it's Republican controlled. Mm -hmm. So again, I want people to be very clear that Republicans do not favor decrim even though constituents in broad numbers and across the political spectrum favor decriminalizing marijuana, yeah. elected Republicans do not, right. they do not favor it. And so that's where we have to start pointing the arrows directly at these candidates and saying, you do not represent the majority of Texans. You represent a, what I usually say is a super minority. I'll give you an example. Greg Abbott, when he ran in 2018, was elected with 9.2% of registered Texans who voted in that primary. 9.2% of registered. And so because he was the what? Republican. That's yeah, insane. Because That's genuinely insane. It's insane. It's, um, a, it's a terrible 9.2% of Texans elected Greg Abbott. He was not elected by a majority. Oh but because God. he was the Republican, you know, contender in 2018, right. and we did not have a, a very compelling challenger to him, it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to win the general. But if you think about it, the genesis of that was our primaries. He won with 9.2% of the vote and then went on to the general. People checked the right. box to vote for a Republican. And that was it. You know, and yeah. Yeah, but really, nine point, he represents 9.2% of Texas. Well, oh we, talk, we call him Lord Farquaad over here. So <laughs> if that didn't fully validate that name calling, I don't know what does. No, fully validated. No, yeah. Thank you. Wow. Oh, my goodness. In a democracy, we all have citizen power. We just need to know how to use it. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you're not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. When you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. 
Citizen Power with Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheeran is a 10-day course, signed for free here, aka in that link in our bio, that offers the civics education you missed or you may have forgotten from high school. This is not just about facts and dates. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. By taking this course, you'll learn what should be taught in civics class, but isn't, your rights and powers as a citizen, how you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. You are the CEO of your elected officials, and it's time to make sure your voice is heard. So head to the link in our episode description to start your amazing civics class today and get the first five days free. Again, head to that link in our episode description and get five days free. All right, guys, do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or even some new incredible skincare? Prima has amazing, doctor-formulated, clinically validated, and high-performance CBD products for the skin, the body, and the mind, you guys, and it comes in so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, skincare. I've gotten some serious relief from stress, hangovers, anxiety, even PMS with this stuff, so give it a shot. Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's top 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, 100% clean with strict safety standards, which is all so, so important to us. So there's also some big news because Prima has launched an app that offers self-care in the palm of your hands and allows you to shop with ease, access exclusive content, and much more. So lucky for us, you can enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive, limited time, 20% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, feel better every day. But nonetheless, we are going to move on to some healthcare stuff. Okay, get into some of the nitty gritty of this with our I have a stupid question segment. So we we like to get back to basics because a lot of this stuff, it's like we start hearing about it later on and then we're like, wait, but like, what does that actually mean? Like Mm -hmm. SOS, somebody help us. So like, what is Medicaid? Like, can you explain like what that is? Like how like someone would even qualify for that? Yes, I'm going to answer what Medicaid is by answering what Medicare is first. So you might, people may have heard, and I hear people confuse them frequently. That's me. Medicare (laughs) is the the healthcare program for the senior citizens in America. So 65 and older, you qualify for Medicare. And it's paid into, you pay into the Medicare plan. If you look at your payroll statement, you'll see that there's social security and Medicare taxes taken out of your Mm -hmm. paycheck, every paycheck. And the Medicare rate is 1.45% is taken out of your paycheck. Your employer also pays an equal amount, 1.45% of your earnings to the Medicare uh, trust fund. So that is for senior citizens. Medicaid was developed to create a a healthcare safety net for for low income individuals who are under the age of 65 and, and for folks who have disabilities. There is a small carve out for senior citizens, but it's for nursing home care only because Medicare will typically pay for your doctors and your, pers- well, no, um, I'm not gonna say prescriptions. It's, they, they can't negotiate, but they will pay for some of your prescriptions, but they, Medicare pays for basically your doctor care, your hospital care. You would have, if you're a senior, you might qualify for Medicaid if you're very, very low income and needed nursing home care. But for most Americans, Medicaid is a safety net for folks who are very, typically very poor and don't have health insurance. 
And in Texas, it's even more restrictive because there's only a small portion of, of people who qualify for Medicaid, pregnant women and pregnant women up to 60 days post birth. Although in the recent legislative session, they extended that to six months after birth. So if you're pregnant or just recently given birth and you're, you know, qualify uh, on an income basis, you could qualify for Medicaid. Children, typically children who live in poverty qualify for Medicaid. And then you have folks with disabilities who qualify for Medicaid. So it's a very, very small pool of people yeah. who would even qualify for this. And again, it allows them to see doctors, get hospital care. Other states that have Medicaid allow pretty much all adults who qualify under a certain income level. And they don't restrict it to just pregnant women or folks with disabilities. And so it is an important social safety net because mm -hmm. it's healthcare is very expensive. Yeah. And typically okay. most people get, I, I should say the best coverage and not always, mm. but sometimes if through their employer's insurance plan, but even for many people, if they have a high deductible plan, even through their employer, you know, the ability to be able to use and tap into their insurance plan might be out of reach. So you're yeah. making, you know, $15 an hour, but you do have health insurance you might not be able to pay for an $8,500 deductible. Yeah. So it's, yeah. But Medicaid is a, is a government financed healthcare program. It's financed state and federal level, but to cover typically folks of a very, very low income status. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. For the next question, what, is, what are managed care organizations? So managed care, their managed care organizations are insurance companies, but it's a way to really, really contain and restrict costs. Some people make known as HMOs, like, and, and I don't know that there are a lot of HMOs in existence anymore. They were not viewed favorably by patients because it really, really restricted your choice of provider. And what, and like, what are, sorry, what are HMOs for yeah. people who don't know? HMO is like the old timey, well, I say old timey insurance plan. It's around <laughs> like, I mean, it's not that old. I mean, seriously, it came about where Insurance companies wanted you to go through your primary care physician, usually your family doctor. So all of your service of care would be guided by your family doctor, your primary care physician. So if you needed, if you were a woman and you might've had like cysts on your ovaries, you would need to go through your primary care doctor to get a referral mm -hmm. to a gynecologist. And let's say you needed surgery. You would still have to go through your primary care physician through the gynecologist to get a surgeon to, to agree to this care. And they work out a plan with the insurance company on the front end. And again, it was really a way to really contain and restrict costs so the insurance companies could save money. Okay. And so it's, it, again, not viewed very favorably because most people like the choice, like, oh my gosh, you know, I've been having hip pain and my knee hurts. I'd like to go see just an orthopedic doctor. Right. I don't want to go through my primary care physician first. I just want to go directly to the source. Yeah. And so we now have things called PPOs. You know, most people prefer their PPO plans to an HMO plan. And I don't think there are very many employers that offer, I don't want to say that like blanket statement because there are some employers who still offer them because they offer incredible savings to employers on the, on the cost side. But mm -hmm. most people like to have the choice of picking their own doctors and not having to have um, a referee say, yeah. no, you can't do that uh, on right. the front end. And like, for things like even emergent care, you have to let your insurance company know. I, I can't remember. They usually have a timeline, like 24 or 48 hours 
of you going to the emergency room. And if you didn't let your insurance company know, they wouldn't cover the cost of emergent care. Which is so like very restrictive. Insane. Insane. Yeah. yeah. I've been on like kind of like every health insurance plan like out there in the world. It's like really <laughs> like honestly, like I probably could find like a collection of insurance cards and make like something cute out of it at this point (laughs) like it's insane and like having like going on to like I think I recently had like elected like open choice and it was so much better because it was like oh I can like actually choose the doctors like I can get second opinions so much faster because it's like I don't have to go back to my like primary care who's like eh like fine but like not necessarily who I want to be like the expert in like every little thing and just didn't really make any sense and like you had such little option that like I could like geographically be forced to go to a doctor so far away from me because that's who they happen to like and have a relationship with versus like whether it actually like would be helpful to me. And so I feel like that type of restriction is like so insane. I I feel like is that that something that's like just with private insurance where this happens or is there like mm-hmm. also sort of like within Obamacare, is there a public version of this too or? So with with the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare and what you can get on the exchange, it does vary. It varies by jurisdiction. But a lot of the exchange products operate as your typical insurance product, which allows you choice. As long as that provider takes that insurance policy, and many of many providers, you know, negotiate with the insurance companies that offer these exchange I call them exchange products. It's because once a year they call it the open exchange. And if you want to buy insurance through uh, the Affordable Care Act, you have to make sure you buy it on the on the exchange during this, I think it's a six week period or four, it might be a four week period. I think Trump narrowed the window. I don't think it's two weeks, maybe it is two weeks. I mean, Trump really tried to, to mess up uh, people's ability to, to get registered and on the exchange through the Affordable Care Act. But many of them, I, I know like in Austin, they operate more like a PPO and you have your choice of, of provider that you can go to. I'll, I'll say this, doctors, primary care physicians don't like HMOs because they're already like taxed and and like, you know, they get to spend like five to 10 minutes with a, a patient, then they're writing up the chart so that they can ensure that they get reimbursement from the insurance company. The last thing they want is a patient who's like, oh, my elbow hurts. And I think I want you to make this referral. It's just another thing. Hurdle, you know, yeah. Layer of, yeah, for them. It's, 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 you know, go directly to the source. If you've got stomach pain, go see a GI doctor. Right. You know, yeah. And so I think there was a lot of pushback by physicians as well as, you know, patients on that old HMO uh, model. Okay. Totally. Even just thinking about the copays that like I had to pay to like go back and be like, okay, like I have to oh, go right. here for yeah. you just to tell me something that I could have Googled and then found on my yeah. own. And I was just like, what the? Yeah. Can't. Yeah. All uh, right. Okay. Well, this is like kind of like another a basic question. I know I kind of jumped ahead on this, but like, what is private insurance? Like, what does that actually yeah. like mean? Well, there are a number of private insurance companies, but they are privately held. Uh, frequently, many of them are, you know, publicly traded. You know, if you think about Blue Cross Blue Shield, that's a private insurance company. Aetna, Cigna, Humana, United Healthcare, those are all private insurance companies. Those are the big five. And a lot, most of the big employers negotiate private insurance for their employees using one of the big five. There are smaller insurance providers for sure. I don't want to um, say that there aren't, but they're, the big five are Blue Cross Blue Shield, United, Cigna, Health, uh, uh, Humana, and um, Aetna. Typically, what happens, because insurance is incredibly expensive, right? Mm-hmm. 
it's health insurance, I should say. It's very, very expensive. So employers, the larger your employer is, the more employees you have, the larger the pool to share risk. Insure, the concept of insurance is a shared risk pool. If you think about your, your insurance to just drive your car, if you are a good driver, you're put in the risk pool with the good drivers, right? And your insurance rates are less. But if you get into too many accidents or get one too many tickets, you're suddenly bumped to this high risk pool and your premiums for your auto insurance go can skyrocket, right? Nobody wants to be put in a bad risk pool. Think about your health insurance that way. It operates very similarly. And before the Affordable Care Act, if you were somebody who had a lot of health care conditions, regardless of whether it was genetic or not, or you had any control over it, you were put in a high risk pool. Insurance companies could drop you and say, not you're too big of a risk for us, could put you in a high risk pool with several others. So y'all were basically sharing each other's very, very expensive healthcare. I've known women who just because they were self-employed and of child, child uh, birthing years had to pay $3,000 to $3,500 a month for private insurance. Wait, wait, why? Yeah. What? <laughs> because that's just what insurance companies charged. And so typically, like if you work for an employer who offers insurance, your employer will pick up some portion of it and share that cost with you. Yeah. But as insurance has gotten more and more expensive, the shift to the employee has become more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are some employers that don't even want to cover it. They'll have an insurance plan, but the entire cost is shifted off to the employee. And if you're talking about a family, you know, an employee who's, you know, got a, a partner and a child, very easily that insurance, the cost of that insurance every month, it could be twelve to sixteen hundred dollars a month. Oh my gosh. And I say the the average cost typically is about six hundred dollars for just one individual. Oh my gosh. And that can go down if you've got, you know, if you've got a company that can negotiate with insurance companies, if you're a small employer and you don't have the power to negotiate, your, your costs are going to be higher. Yeah. I mean, you think about insurance companies really have all the power. Right. I mean, you and I are not in a position to negotiate with them. Yeah. Well, that's kind of our next question. We want to dive into this much deeper now, but why is it like this? Why is it so murky? Why is there such a lack of transparency? Why is it seems seemingly so like inefficient, unfair, like it just doesn't yeah. seem like there's anything going right when it comes to healthcare in our country, especially, you know, politically. Can you kind of explain like what's going on? Why is it like this? Well, there is an incredible book called An American Sickness that goes through the, truly like the history of why is America health, American healthcare so different from the rest of the world? And yeah. Why do we do it this way? And it's a fascinating, I mean, I don't expect people to read it, so I'll give you all the, kind of the Cliff Notes version of it because it's very, very dense. Yeah. But it, it started out where, and it started out honestly with Blue Cross. It was a nonprofit insurance plan that allowed people to buy a plan, and they, if they had to get hospitalized, it would cover up to two weeks of hospitalization. And it was very affordable very, very affordable. The Blue Shield part came in that gave them access to doctors for, again, a very, very affordable rate. And, and typically, it came about like the employer part of it in World War II. World War II, most employers were prohibited from creating financial incentives 
to lure employees away from everything because we're in the middle of a war. So the one way that employers would try to find new talent was offering an insurance plan. Mm -hmm. And so Blue Cross Blue Shield was part of that. And initially insurance plans were nonprofit. And then I don't know why they allowed them to be, they being government, allowed them to be for-profit. But when the for-profit insurance plans entered the, the ring, it became very, very uncompetitive for mm. Blue Cross Blue Shield because what the for-profit ones would do is say, we'll take all your healthy employees and give you a fabulous rate. And that left the really unhealthy ones on Blue Cross Blue Shield. So Blue Cross Blue Shield eventually dissolved their nonprofit status, became a for-profit insurance company. And that's kind of how we have our insurance business today. When you get into you know, the pricing of hospitals and pharmaceuticals and it's it's so convoluted. Mm-hmm. So you have, and I'm going to give you Texas as an example. Texas has about one in five people who are uninsured. I mean, no insurance plan. There's no Medicaid. There's no Medicare. There's no private insurance. It's just truly uninsured. So about one in every five, five and a half people is uninsured. And if you're dealing with, let's say you are a 55-year-old male who has uh, hypertension, something that's incredibly treatable if you are under the care of a doctor, right? You can take medication every month for relatively inexpensive cost and treat it. Or you have diabetes. You know, insulin costs have gone up and up, but you could take insulin to manage your diabetes. Well, if you don't have insurance, therefore you don't have a doctor, therefore you don't have a prescription plan, you're not, nobody's telling you like what are the lifestyle changes that you can make to help mitigate some of the healthcare effects of your chronic condition, you will end up in an ER. And if you end up in an ER with cardiac arrest, needing cardiac surgery, that's about a $250,000 bill. Yeah. And guess what? If you are uninsured, they will provide you the care, life-saving care. They have to, they're required to, even if you don't have insurance. But you could end up with a bill on the other side of that for $250,000. You could have a collection agency coming after you. Chances are you're never going to be able to pay it even if you don't have insurance. It's just like buying a house, like who can just, who has that cash on hand to do that? And if you're not insured, especially in the area of cardiac surgery, you need rehab on the other side of Mm -hmm. surgery right? to kind of strengthen your heart back up. Well, you're not going to get that unless you have insurance. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you're well enough to walk out of your room, they will push you out of the hospital and chances are you will end up back there because you're not getting the medication you need, the lifestyle coaching you need, and the cardiac rehab you need. And chances are you won't make it back a third time because right. your heart will probably give out. So it, it becomes a very, very costly endeavor to not have insurance in a, in a state like Texas, right? So people end up going to the hospital. Hospitals have this thing that they call a pool of uncompensated care. Those are the folks who don't have insurance or even can't, they have insurance, but they can't afford their deductible. So it's all the costs that are not being reimbursed by a patient. That gets negotiated by a hospital when they're negotiating with insurance companies. They want the insurance company to cover that cost of care. That's a very, very expensive care. They want somebody to cover that cost. And so typically the only the only companies that are in any position to do that are private insurance companies. And guess what? They're not going to eat that cost. Who are they going to push it off to? Employers and their employees. Mm-hmm. So You've got this vicious cycle of people who don't have insurance ending up in hospitals needing very, very expensive care that gets pushed off to private insurance companies. And then a second funding mechanism for that 
is our taxes. So every state collects, a sum, collects some amount of taxes to pay for um, what they call indigent healthcare. And that typically means folks who can fall below, typically live in poverty, don't have insurance. In Texas, we fund it through property taxes. So if you live anywhere where there's property tax, which is a home, an apartment, you know, it, if you were a housed person and not an unhoused person, you were paying property tax either to your mortgage company, to the, a fit, you know, the county and the city itself, or to your uh, landlord. We collect property taxes and we pay for healthcare. We shore up our hospitals. County hospitals, especially in rural parts of Texas, desperately need this revenue to keep their hospitals afloat and open. So you can see it's just, and it's a terrible, terrible way to fund healthcare because you're funding the worst parts of healthcare when somebody is in dire need. Yeah. So I can't even remember what your original question was. I apologize, but you no, know. But that, that whole thing is just so insane. Like yeah. I think about, okay, $250,000, right? Think about that in contrast to like what student loans. So you go to a private school and it ends about the same. And think about how long it takes someone to pay off their student loans, even at like a huge amount per month. Like you could be paying that off for decades. So like yeah, for the to, rest have, of your life. to have something, yeah, for the rest of your life and to have something like that, like sometimes like healthcare crises are unpredictable. Sometimes they are predictable. Like whatever it may be, like that cost is just like absolutely insurmountable to most people. So like the fact that then, it, and I see how this cycle totally comes to light because at the end of the day, then you make insurance so unaffordable that even the people that are on it are barely struggling to keep, like stay on it. Yeah. So it's like the lack of access at any point just causes like this huge shit show to be honest it it really does and that's what i'm saying like it's so where the cost of this uncompensated care and again it's very expensive care it's not primary care like remember i want people to remember 55 year old male who has hypertension could have seen a doctor in a very very well a much less expensive setting yeah you put on medication every month get the lifestyle coaching like yeah you mm. shouldn't eat high fatty foods, you should stop smoking, you know, right. you don't get that in an ER, you're not going to get that in an ER at all. So that cost gets bundled up. And it's really borne by employers, employees, and then folks who pay taxes into their respective, you know, localities, either right. state income taxes or property taxes, there is a funding mechanism to do this. And we could be offering everybody healthcare at a fraction of the cost. Because you could avoid so many of these emergent cases just by allowing right. somebody to see a doctor. You would oh, never have a doctor bill $250,000, even if somebody saw their doctor, you know, every month of the year, which mm -hmm. most people don't see their doctor every month. But if you have hypertension, you go see your doctor maybe once or twice a year, you adjust your medication, that's it. Yeah. You're good. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 100%. It's never, you're never going to get a bill for $250,000 out of that, even if they had to see the doctor every year for the rest of their life. Yeah. It's not going to add up. Well, that's like the perfect segue of this conversation of like, it doesn't have to be like this. And <laughs> we want to talk about kind of, there's always this comparison with like Canada when it comes to like prescription drug prices. Can you kind of explain why, why Canada is able to provide such affordable services and the U.S. can't slash won't? <laughs> like, why is that? Well, I will say why we won't is big moneyed interest. We have, unfortunately, a political scene where, you know, if you write your legislator a large enough check, they're not going to vote in favor of legislation against you, right? Right. 
So if you are a pharmaceutical company and you can write a check to the Lindsey Grahams of the world, and well, it's, it's not just Lindsey Graham, it's, Everyone. it's it, Republicans and Democrats, totally. let's be honest, yes. take money from, from corporate interests. Opensecrets.org. Um, Go check it out. Yeah, opensecrets.org. <laughs> if you want to know where who's paying the bills of, or the, I should say, the re-election campaigns for your congressmen, your senators, congresswomen, president even, opensecrets.org is a wonderful, wonderful tool to use. But pharmaceutical companies, they have their executives write checks, individual checks to their, their legislators. They also create PACs. They fund PACs that also give to these legislators. So you can really see where the money goes. And I guarantee you, if you have somebody who's been elected who's receiving special interest money, they're not going to vote in, against that interest. Right. So in America, pharmaceutical companies are notorious for writing very large to elected officials. And that is why we have ended up with a law under, I think it was George W. Bush, that said Medicare cannot negotiate for the rates of pharmaceutical drugs for their patient population. So Canada gets to nego negotiate about, on that. So if you think, okay, okay, let me just take a step back or two. If you are negotiating, you know, the price of anything, you want two people who are pretty much on the same level, right? Yeah. To be able to, to negotiate. Like you're, even if you go in to buy a car, you always have the option to walk out and say, well, I'm not going to buy that car. I'll go to another dealer and mm -hmm. negotiate with them. So you've got some power as a consumer to say, I'm yeah. going to negotiate. And if you're not going to give me the price I want, I will find somebody who will, totally. who will, right? So you just assume that there's a fair arm's length transaction and people are operating good faith, you know, to, to come to a, an agreement on pricing. And the larger your your influence, the greater your power to negotiate. So right. if you think about the purchasing power of the federal government, there's a lot of negotiating power there. Say pharmaceutical one, if you're not going to give us the price we want, we will go to another pharmaceutical and get the price that we need. Or better yet, we will actually just develop our own generic mm -hmm. of this pharmaceutical. Elizabeth Warren had a fabulous pharmaceutical plan that said, Anything that's a generic drug, the, far, the United States government will actually manufacture to keep prices low, which I thought was an incredible idea. So there's a huge, huge leverage having that, that power of, of being able to purchase such large quantities of something that you can get your rates down really, really low. Well, we wrote into law under George Bush that Medicare, they took that power away from Medicare literally strip Medicare of the power to negotiate drug oh, prices wow. down. Canada can do that. Okay. Canada can negotiate. And then guess what? It's a, it's a country. It's got a huge negotiating power, huge leverage. It keeps the prices low. But we have basically tied the hands of Medicare to be able to do that. And it's really, really unfortunate. So that's why we're seeing pharmaceutical companies take what were once generic drugs and reformulate and maybe even wrap just the pill in a different layer of plastic. And that can be considered a reformulation that they can add you know, thousands of dollars of cost to for the consumer. It's ridiculous. Wow, that's insane. And I always wanna remind people, because this is where I think it's fun. If you actually look at the total compensation of any healthcare executive, whether it's a pharmaceutical executive, an insurance executive, a large hospital executive, and you take their compensation and divide it by 365 days, which we have 
in the year, unless it's a, a leap year, their annual or daily compensation, daily compensation typically ranges from about 20,000 on the low end a day. Oh my goodness. To upwards of 200,000 oh on the God. high end. We are paying for that goal in our healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. Wow. Something that, okay, you tell me which insurance company uh, has the latest medical advance or has done something to make healthcare like a technological innovation that they should be compensated at that level. Mm -hmm. And he health insurance is probably one of the worst because they're doing nothing more than preventing people from the healthcare, seeking the healthcare that they need. Right. And yet their executives, the insurance executives, theirs are probably the worst, make anywhere from really like $49,000 a year to I think it was $220,000. I mean, $49,000 a day, forgive me, to $220,000 a day, every day of the year, weekends and holidays included. My goodness. That's insane. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, wow. No, it's really fun if you ever have it, you know, have a bee in your bonnet to go look at the total compensation packages for any of these companies. They're always found in their annual 10K reports. And um, just look at total compensation, divide it by 365, and you're going to get in a, a staggering daily number. Wow. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. So, That's why is insane. it this way? It's because those guys who make $50,000 a day. They want to keep it that way. Very large checks. They want to keep it that way. Totally. They like those $50,000 a day checks. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, this has been so eye opening. I've always struggled understanding the whole healthcare conversation. So, this has been very helpful for me and I hope for everybody else. But before we wrap up, can you also give kind of any where people can find ground game and all of that yeah. plug, plug everything thank you yeah so ground game texas we have a website groundgametexas.org we are always looking for volunteers you know obviously collecting signatures is a really boots on the ground sort of work and we would love your help in that but we also you know need help with other things so if you're not in texas we can still use your help contributions i mean this is a nonprofit. you're funded by the generosity of our donors mm -hmm. so even small dollar contributions i remember when i was a, a candidate they're so impactful so if you know somebody can afford five or ten dollars monthly recurring we would love to have your support so yeah it's it's i have not given up on texas i hope other folks don't give up on texas I no think it's just the beginning get there. It's, it's just the beginning, just the beginning that's beginning right for we are scratching the surface mm -hmm. totally yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. My and we'll, we'll for sure have you back on to explain whatever um, is next in the healthcare world because we're going to need some help. But um, thank you again. You are welcome. Thank you all. Thank you. All right, guys. Top stories of the week. We're starting off with a story out of Buffalo, New York. So... Basically, Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown. What a name. Also, really comes off the tongue. Well, I just, I love how it rolls together. It rolls you know what together. I mean? Like, so and even think about, like, the branding you could do around it. Like, some really cool fonts. And, like, guys just... Yeah, it sounds like, like This is not us endorsing him or anything. Like, this is just, like, oh, no, no, my no. God. It sounds woman. like a mascot's name. Like, you know, like, if there was say, a bear mascot. Like, his name would be Byron Brown Bear. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say branding Byron like it could be like it's a show I just He's like a branding expert he's like branding with Byron Brown 
I'm kind of obsessed with that. But yeah. anyways, the story. Political, the story. political Byron Brown here is the <laughs> Buffalo's mayor. And he actually has been angering progressives with his, oh, who's calling me mom? Of course she is. Classic. Classic. Anyways, so Byron Brown has angered progressives with his winning right in campaign against the Democratic Socialists who beat him in the primary. So left-wing Democrats are calling for the Democrats to strip Brown of his position on the DNC. Larry Cohen, chair of Bernie Sanders' aligned group, Our Revolution, said, When you pull a stunt like this, somebody wins a primary, a working-class woman, and you go to every rich donor in both parties to fund a right-in campaign, it's a disgrace. So Cohen states he plans to organize efforts to press Democrats to remove Brown from his post on the DNC. Such a classic, honestly, like DNC move. I don't have hope in the DNC not doing anything about this. This is like so up their alley, just like fucking over grassroots and progressive candidates. But that's just. And it's also like she won. Yeah. She won fair and square, which goes to show that, like, everyone always goes by that philosophy of, like, if you follow the rules, like, you'll get ahead. If you follow the rules and work hard, like, you'll get this. And it's like, that's not necessarily true. And I think this is, like, a really good no, example. No, the powers that, that like, be. She will freaking push them. won. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, there was all this corporate money pushing a classic old <clears throat> dude, you know. Yeah. And it's just, like, this. also such a, like, for everyone listening. When things have just the name Democrats associated with it, don't think it's, like, holy and good. Like, the DNC is such a toxic organization and, like, really the root of a lot of the problems we see politically because they are so intertwined with corporations and all of that money. So just keep that in mind. Like, just because it has DNC attached to it doesn't mean it's it's a good thing necessarily. And And now the DNC is going to come for us. (laughs) Oh, they absolutely are. But, like, honestly, like, DNC aside, whether Republican, Democrat, any range, other other party, whatever it is, like, just always remember to, like, look at it with a critical eye. But what's also important here is that this situation really reflects the extent of the tensions between the modern progressive Democrats. So in case you haven't been, like, sort of feeling that, like, watching everything happen in this last election situation and more... And more than anything, build back better and infrastructure and all of that. I mean, this is such a great example. I mean, they couldn't even let a candidate that fairly won a primary actually get to the general election. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Yeah. So to give a little more, you know, color to the story. So John Rainish, who is a New York-based Democratic strategist, said, this to me sounds like another case of sour grapes out of our revolution, which just connection again is with Bernie. I think that progressives are feeling cornered, which is why you're seeing a lot of them lashing out where Democrats did badly. And it was a bad night in last week's election. A lot of it was loud and clear, a message from the voters that people feel the party is going too far left. So that's, that's his two cents. But here's a little bit more background on the story of like this particular election, this particular race, is India Walton, who is a registered nurse and community organizer, actually beat Brown in Buffalo's mayoral primary in June by nearly five percentage points. So just giving context here, like imagine you won something like fair and square, five percentage points ahead, and then like in the general election, you like still somehow don't win. Insane. So anyways, she was backed by like all the heavy hitters, all the big kahunas, Sanders, AOC, even Gillibrand and good old Schumer. Yeah. Why'd that just come out like that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Grossumer. So then in the general election, Brown, the f- a four-term incumbent, orchestrated a well-funded write-in campaign appealing to both moderate Democrats and Republicans who had no candidate on the general election ballot. The viability of his effort kept several top New York Democrats, including Governor Kathy Hochul, on the sidelines. Earlier this year, the state Democratic Party chair, Jay Jacobs, another good one. Oh my God, Jay Jacobs. <laughs> Wait, Jay Jacobs. Okay, what? what's the mascot that's going to be associated with that? A blue jay? Who are their jays. parents? I need to speak to all these parents that are killing the alliteration game. What city has the blue jays team? Toronto. Toronto, hey, if there's any Canadians out there listening, tell them that they need to name the mascot Jay Jacobs. Anyways, oh, um, the state Democratic cute. chair party chair jay jacobs faced blowback from progressives when asked about democrats failing to endorse walton he answered with an analogy involving former ku klux klan grand wizard david Jesus. um questionable but ultimately uh, the brown campaign said mayor byron brown's democratic party bona fides are well known and beyond reproach any questions of them by bernie sanders or india walton are without merit and are simply sour grapes following a decisive write-in defeat in the buffalo mayoral election last week Okay, I have a comment and I have a question. The comic goes first. How many times can people say sour grapes? I just love want it. to know. They love it. Second to that, have you ever written in like a candidate for a election? No, mostly because, well, doing that in principle is like, you know, a direct democracy in action situation. Totally. But... It's just, it's never really the right move because it's kind of like throwing away a vote unless there's a legitimate campaign and like organizing around somebody to write them in. You know, this type of organizing, whereas like just getting a bunch of like the DNC and corporate donors to like come in and help create this massive campaign to make him be a write-in versus this like grassroots, like boots on the ground candidate like India Walton. It's, I, I don't think that's right. But again, this isn't like illegal or anything. That's why it's tricky. But it's just showing you the power of the DNC and of money in politics and how if there's money there, they can make shit happen, unfortunately. But that's why we got to keep uplifting grassroots candidates. It's so important. You could not speak the truth more. And I do think it is interesting because like I do love the concept from like a direct democracy point of view for sure. But it is funny how, like, so often, like, it's not the play. Right. And I feel like this is so interesting because I, obviously, I'm not, you know, educated on every campaign that's ever existed and every election that's ever existed and whatever. But I feel like I don't remember the last time, if ever, I've heard of a write-in campaign being successful. Like, I, like, I was like, what? Yeah. Come again? And that'd be, cur- that'd be interesting to know mm-hmm. what the history is there, if there has been. But... Pretty, pretty crazy. I'm really just unfortunate at the end of the day. And, you know, a lot of times losses like this from candidates like India Walton, there's always a redemption story. So we'll keep an eye out Mm -hmm. for that for sure. But moving on, we've been waiting and yearning and waiting and yearning to ring the fucking bipartisan (laughs) bell because, you guys, (laughs) can we have a moment of silence? The bipartisan infrastructure bill has officially passed the house did we ever see think we'd see the day nope absolutely not zero out of zero chances it's Mm-mm. just i i'm speechless and 
we actually have an amazing guest coming on next week to go over all of this with us because it is complicated af and Agreed. we have a seriously amazing guest coming on next week to to really break yeah. it all down for us so we're talking both things we're talking biff and we're talking build back better so yes so all of the things you've been seeing you've been seeing all over the news and what we've been trying to you know explain to you guys for months on end now we're gonna have a real expert come in and like really break it down for us so i'm super excited about that but we will kind of go over what happened and a little bit more about this bipartisan infrastructure bill so let's just run through five of these key energy components that are happening with this bill first one is climate focused transportation but it's not necessarily emission free so this is going to include like clean energy school buses funding for vehicles that run on fuels like natural gases there's also some low emitting ferries thrown in there so that's the first one and then second to that is cleaner power from sources other than renewables. So included in this is sort of a boost to nuclear energy as well as hydropower. So there are a few different variations on a theme, but less for solar power than you would have thought, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Number three is electric grid upgrades. So this is going to reinforce resilience of the U.S. electric grid. Nationwide grid reliability program to be established within 180 days of this bill being enacted. And it's going to allocate a billion dollars from 2022 to 2026. Ew, I just like hate saying years that Ooh. are so far away like that. <laughs> like, excuse you. Like, Don't make me think even. of 2026 to modernize and improve rural grid resilience. So that's number three. And we've got a little bit of moolah for energy efficiency in buildings. So there's grants for states to create loan funds for building energy upgrades. There's also target grants for schools looking to, you know, reduce their energy costs and so on, which is really interesting because some of these buildings are so freaking old. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They are. Well, number five, we're going to bring her home with, it's going to clean up lead and toxic chemicals out of our water system. Speaking of old buildings, And speaking of what's in those old buildings, old pipes that have very toxic chemicals in them. And so that's going to put $50 billion toward water infrastructure, including cleanup for forever chemicals. It would provide $15 billion to replace lead pipes and prioritize low-income communities and communities of color, which had been disproportionately affected, such as Flint, Michigan. Facts on facts. This is, like, about fucking time for especially Mm -hmm. this part. Like, there are so many places in this country again especially low-income communities and communities of color who have literally just have had poisoned water for decades so it's just seriously such about time for this but that's a little bit about this bipartisan infrastructure bill let's ring the bell one more time there she is and stay tuned next week as we go over this in more detail with our amazing guest the final story last week there was an election. Mm, <laughs> Most people are like, what? Excuse me? Elections, actually. Let me rephrase. So we're going to go through some of the techies from the election last week because there were definitely some lessons learned, to say the least. Well, lessons, whether they were learned or not. <laughs> people is a whole nother can of worms. That's facts, Samantha. <laughs> so, <laughs> number one is really the race that everyone had their eyes on, which was in Virginia, the governor's race. Virginia had trended blue and Biden killed it in Virginia last year. So pretty crazy because then last Tuesday happened where a Republican ended up winning the gubernatorial race in Virginia. Don't you love that word? If I could pronounce it, gubernatorial. I I only know that because I worked on a gubernatorial campaign. 
but that's like saying Swarovski like that takes me months <laughs> of practice I have never said that before so until Tuesday Democrats were winning Virginia and Democrats had full control of the state house but Youngkin who is the Republican won 17 percent of voters who disapprove of Trump which is fucking crazy because he was yes. endorsed by Trump correct he was yeah but Throughout the campaign, he kind of kept, like, an arm's length distance. Like, yeah. it, he didn't run, like, what a lot of the the pundits have been saying. It's like he didn't run a Trumpy campaign. He ran a Romney campaign, which yeah. is still so hot. Let's, but anyways. Oh, don't get Sam excited over there. <laughs> <laughs> anyways. McAuliffe, who was the Democrat, only won 5% of those who approved Trump, which is also, like, what a crazy stat. And Youngkin focused on local issues over national issues. And critical race theory was actually a major point of him winning as he disapproved of it, ending COVID shutdowns and ending mask mandates and launching it on an education budget. Which, I, uh, I just... If you think about the Dem here... Can you name anything on his platform besides that he's a Dem no. and was a former governor? No. I, like, no that's freaking those way. Establishment, that's establishment problem. Yeah, it's those establishment Democrats who don't really do shit, and they're not memorable, and they don't inspire people, and they don't promote new innovative ideas. And especially in races like this, like, especially when Biden is shitting the can so much. I don't even know if that's a phrase. But it is now. Okay, it, it is, is now. Absolutely now. But you, we're shitting the bed. Shitting the bed. Shitting the can. <laughs> Am I okay? We really needed somebody to, on the blue side, on the Democratic side, to like inspire people and get people out to vote. And this man was not enough to pick up the slack that like Biden is putting on the Democratic Party. So, no, that's kind of what's happening here. And then as we run through these two, like these are a lot of kind of takeaways that are also through the lens of looking at 2022 and the midterms Mm -hmm. and what kind of is going to be learned from this year and these few elections that happened last week. So speaking of takeaways and thinking about this inside of Virginia and outside as well, is it seems like voters have really moved past voting on things related to COVID-19. So in Virginia, just 14% of voters said that the coronavirus pandemic was the most important issue facing the Commonwealth. So this is from exit polls. That trailed the economy at 33%, education at 24%, and taxes at 15%, which is really interesting. Like, I feel like part of that's got to be, like, we're all just so traumatized by it that we almost just want to be like, I don't even care anymore. Well, or it's like, since we're, like, kind of back to reality in ways, we're like, okay, I feel like I'm a little bit back out of the weeds from covid we're resuming normal life. Like, I'm done talking about this. Like, people are probably mm. just exhausted. Mm-hmm. And they're like, since Agreed. we're pretty much normal at this point, like, can we just stop? <laughs> can ever can we just stop? But another takeaway was actually an interesting one. And again, one that's going to be very pertinent going into next year is making it all about Trump didn't work. So there's no question that McCullough relied too much on Trump in absence of every th- of anything else. That was a mistake, a senior Democratic operative told CNN. And using Trump is okay. Only using Trump in absence of everything else is not a good strategy. So that worked in 2020. That's why the turnout Mm -hmm. was so fucking high. But next year, again, we're going to need people and candidates prioritizing issues that are going to inspire people to go vote. Because we don't have the Trump monster in our face anymore. So we can't rely on that next year. 
it's like the opposite. There was huge Republican turnout. Yeah. Across the board, especially I know in New York, but el- across the board, like I said. And part of that is because what all the the Dems have been putting out there has made them incredibly mad because obviously anger in politics does work and it does drive voter turnout. But like, it's something to pay attention to that the anger, while it was there in 2020, it's not alive enough to like get someone to be like, "Mm, well, yeah, or it's like, it's kind of the same thing with COVID. It's like, okay, we're done talking about Trump. Like, can we move on? Can we focus on real issues and real solutions, please? That like are actually going to affect me. Um, and then speaking of sort of this mentality, New Jersey was a freaking shit show. And if you wanted to see two live heart attacks happening, myself and our intern Janine, who's also a Jersey person, and I were literally, we were not well. We weren't like, we were just genuinely not well, like going into that next morning after, because it really seemed like that was like a locked in race. Like Murphy, Phil Murphy, the current governor now, he did get reelected. Like, it was going to be, like, a signed deal. Like, yeah, Jersey is pretty blue, although I will say, like, living there previously, like, definitely a lot of Republicans, its too. It's Absolutely. Especially by the coast. Oh, my freaking God. See my TikTok on that? Yeah, me. and shout out to Janique for driving from Pennsylvania to New Jersey to go vote. And just let, let her be an inspiration to you all that do whatever it takes to get your get your ballot in all right she drove four hours four hours to go vote we stand like what a trooper what an inspiration we love her Mm -hmm. take after janique man and another final kind of big takeaway and something that people had their eyes on for sure was in minneapolis there was a big ballot measure for police reform obviously minneapolis is where george floyd was murdered so there was a ballot initiative that basically would have removed a requirement to employ a minimum number of police officers in proportion to the city's population. And Minneapolis City Council Member Philippe Cunningham, who spearheaded a similar ballot initiative over the past year, told CNN late Tuesday night that the result was really unfortunate. So the voters in Minneapolis rejected this very ambitious police reform ballot initiative. So also a very, very interesting takeaway that in the heart of where all of this police reform conversation started that ballot initiative couldn't pass so that's going to say a lot on the national scale of what police reform will do elsewhere so the same goes for voter reform in new york none of the voter reform passed and those were all ballot proposals so that's another conversation being had nationally as well and couldn't pass in a liberal state so yeah very interesting to sort of see this stuff going down but i guess that is that that is that for this week's episode for this week's episode for 2021 election it's it's not looking good for democrats next year we'll say that so definitely if this makes you feel a certain type of way and worried for next year it's time to start really paying attention this shit starts now for next year so start looking at mm-hmm. candidates and campaigns that interest you and support them and uplift them because we're going to need everyone to rally going into next year if we want um, to maintain control in the House and the Senate. Anyways, go buy merch. <laughs> November 16th is the day when you can no longer buy our merch. So go get it while it's hot. If you got one, maybe check out the other designs, see if you like them or see if the, you, you know, a friend would like them for the holidays. But that is it for this week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, follow us on social media, and we will be talking to you all next Wednesday.
Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.